Well, hi, everybody. John Porteous here of the Lovells Township Historical Society. I'm with Richard Perry, uh, my partner in crime, and our special guest, Dave Kozad. Um, Dave, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Um, great I, to be here. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as per spec, uh, we start with the uh, pretty vanilla generic. So uh, give our listeners an idea about your background. Um, you know, as as a cheater, you, I, I think you're you're one of those few people that gets to combine their their formal education with their passion and and ex- execute a, upon it postgraduate. So with that as a tease, I'll turn it over to you, sir. Thank you, John and Richard. It's uh, it's uh, lovely to be here this afternoon in northern Michigan, uh, in the Osable River watershed, and, and appreciate the opportunity that uh, the uh, historical uh, museum uh, has provided here today. Um, uh, I'm a lifelong Michigander from Bay City, uh, who first came to the to the Osable River watershed in the seventh grade on a canoe trip. Uh, with our uh, middle school band. Oh, excellent. Uh, one day. And, and we terrorized the river quite, the South Branch quite quite thoroughly, uh, from Ross Common to, to Chase Bridge. Uh, and uh, fortunately, very quickly, my love for the Osable matured into things like trout fishing and, and uh, grouse hunting and woodcock hunting uh, in my uh, later high school years and, uh, and, and to this day. Um, I, uh, I spent, uh, I got to know the, the North Branch a bit intimately in the summers of 1979, 1980, and 81, uh, when I was a seasonal worker with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, um, rehabilitating and building new cover structures as well um, from a spot uh, just above Jackson Hole uh, down to Morley Road. Uh, over those three summers. And um, the North Branch is a very lovely uh, part of the Osable. Um, and I feel very fortunate uh, having uh, been able to work for the department those three summers. Uh, I was uh, coming into graduate school at Central Michigan University uh, in the fall of 1979 and uh, was able to, as you hinted earlier, John, uh, mix and match my, uh, my uh, love for the river with a research project, which was the um, uh, analysis of how trout utilize artificial cover uh, in three separate reaches of stream, again from, you know, uh, Dam 4 down to um, uh, the uh, Nash Camp. Oh, and, nice. Uh, it's a lovely piece of river with some real really nice uh, uh, diversity. I was going to uh, say some diverse areas too. You get yeah. kind of the tall by Nash Camp, uh, almost grasshoppery type of water and mm-hmm. the riffles below Dam 4. That'd be pretty, really cool. And you get a deep stretch uh, in there past what used to be Papenfus's, uh property. It's now part of Sand Spring, uh, the lower end of Sand Spring where you get clay outcroppings in the, in the stream bed. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's a, we picked three somewhat uh, different reaches of stream to analyze cover use in, and uh, and that that those those two years of analysis were really a, a lot of fun as well, a lot of work and a lot of fun. We electrofished uh, each month, with the exception of uh, November, December, January, February, and March. Okay. Uh, and we tagged some fish. And then, uh, and we took a look at, you know, from trying to do it from the fish's perspective, from the trout's perspective, what are they looking for in habitat? Why do they pick some, some structures more so than others? And that was, that was that was very interesting. Um, so, if I may, Dave, yeah. was that the kind of thing where, you, you give them a little locator. Subskin thing, and then go out and. Uh, and kind of try to hone that signal, or no? It, it was much more um, uh, basic back then. They were what we call foy tags, which are just a, a T tag with an orange, you know, uh, a trailer on it, about I don't know, 
two inches long. Okay. Uh, and you you injected that. You turned the T in that in that item, much like uh, uh, like a retail tag. Like a, yeah, exactly. You turn that uh, vertical between two rays on the dorsal fin, and then and then when you once you had it in, you turned it sideways. And um, uh, unfortunately, for whatever reasons, we were able, never able to discern. One of the things we learned is that those fish move around a lot. Um, you know, in, in shocking each month, except those winter months, um, we were amazed at how we weren't finding fish with tags or fish with scars. So it wasn't you know, strictly a matter of the, the tag coming out. Mm -hmm. um, the fish that we were You're we seeing were totally different were fish. Di were different. You know, there, there may have been some overlap. I'm trying to think of the, the, uh, the size range above which we tagged. And so it was a smaller fraction of the, of the overall, you know, uh, sample that we took okay. uh, in each instance. But uh, we had a lot of fun, and it, was, uh, it took us a full day to do that shocking each month. When we got to the fall, it took you know, a day and a half sometimes due to the colder conditions and, and so forth and the shorter days. Uh, but uh, we, we learned an awful lot. We didn't get all the answers that we wanted. Um, obviously, but uh, the one thing we did learn is that those fish move around a lot, uh, particularly the smaller ones, and um, it was uh, it was it was a nice study and again a big hook in terms of, of you know my direction and wanting to stay involved in the Osapa River mm -hmm. watershed. Um, it's a kind of a gateway thing. Yeah, marijuana. We used to no. <laughs> Do you just we get to, to just? Questions per self-perpetuate. Is this a function of learning more? You find more questions. Well, the, the more you, the more information you have, the less you realize you understand. Um, and absolutely, not that much different from where we are. Exactly. Exactly. Each night after we were done uh, with our electrofishing, uh, we ended up for dinner at the riverside. Uh, so some things never changed. There you uh, go. And. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was a lot of fun. It, we went through a, a lot of volunteer helpers uh, because, as I say, it was it was strenuous. Um, I wouldn't want to try and have to do it today. So, did you guys float a generator then, or use a crank telephone, or how did you we, actually do the shot? We we used an, uh, uh, a gasoline powered generator. Did, a generator. DNR loaned us their allowed us to oh, use okay. their electric fishing gear, and um, and for that we're, we were very uh, grateful, and it and it worked exceedingly well. Um, we had a couple of folks on the crew that had electrofished before, and, and fortunately, they they would uh, they were available at each time. So, mm -hmm. whenever you have a few folks that have done it, they, they tend to marshal the forces a little better right. than if you're Don't all touch this. if you're all feel, feeling your way through it. Right. Let us know if your waders start to leak. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was all accomplished very safely, and and. Um, as I say, we learned we learned a lot of things unintentionally that you know we didn't expect to we didn't expect to learn, um, and we had uh, great uh, interest and cooperation with landowners at, at the time. Um, the family that uh, owned the Sand Springs uh, from Grand Blank, the name will come back to me. I just had it. It's like Bob Moss and his wife. Uh, uh, were very helpful, and that was our upstream most station at Sand Springs. Um, the uh, Miller family that owned Mash Camp at the time uh, also helped. Uh, Pappenfuss allowed us to, to trespass through their property as, as needed. And um, interestingly, this just popped back into my mind. That first summer, they burned off in a controlled burn all that jack pine you know, to, on the east edge of, of the Nash Camp property. Oh, wow. And that was, we were down on the river. We knew it was going to happen that day. And, but the noise, you know, when that thing went up. Pretty impressive. It, it was, it, it captured your attention. And, and it held it. Yes, yes. And it didn't last for a long time, you know, but uh, uh, that, that was, and, and as you, you know, so we were in, it wasn't that long after Mac Lake. So, you know, that's the sort of image. That for, for our listeners that might not be aware, you want to expand Lake on that? It <laughs> was, was a large, um, uh, what was to have been a controlled burn 
in the uh, uh, Mile Ranger District of the Forest Service um, in May of, I, I want to say 78, maybe 77, somewhere in there, uh, that got out of control and some lives were lost and many structures were oh, lost. Oh, wow. Um, uh, this fire uh, next to Nash Camp uh, came off without a hitch. And, but as I say, the, the, the noise that it made as it took off was very captured, just captured and held mm. your attention, um, substantial. Um, so I have a, a bachelor's degree in biology from Alma College and a master's degree from Central Michigan University in uh, aquatic biology. And, but my, my graduate training really did continue to hone in on um, cold water stream ecology. And uh, I had a good committee, uh, and a stream ecologist, Bob King, on my committee, and a herpetologist, uh, Jim Gillingham, who's a very good um, uh, overall uh, ecologist and behavioral ecologist, and then Herb Lennon, who was a fisheries uh, uh, person. And uh, uh, as I say, the pro they let me, you know, with their help, design a project, a, 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 a thesis project, and then and, and carry it out and uh, uh, as you say we had a lot of fun we learned some things um, and we ended up with some questions when, when we were done as well um, after graduate school in 1982 uh, I founded Mainstream Resources uh, which is an environmental consulting firm uh, that specialized in for the most part um, uh, watershed restoration of trout streams trout and salmon streams um, the design of, of certain aspects of restoration, the, the, the construction work, and then the monitoring uh, after uh, construction had been completed. And as we did that um, uh, from 1982 in earnest probably until a couple of years ago. Um, and I've wound that business down. And um, I've been on the record before uh, as saying that uh, uh, I'm semi-retired now. And, okay. Uh, that's come back. I know people have said that to me. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, uh, where was I going with that? Uh, uh, I, in, in 2001, I had a couple segues in and out of consulting and some that overlapped. Um, in 2001, Bill Walker, uh, who I had met in, in Michigan Trout Unlimited uh, back in, again, in the early 80s, and I uh, accidentally got involved in a, in a business venture uh, involving dredging. That, uh, we, we named the company Restoration Dredging, and it was, we had to make some lemonade out of lemons that we had. Uh, uh, Trout Unlimited, as, as some of your listeners may recall, had a, uh, a device uh, that, that they had built called a stream sweeper, uh, which was a, a very small suction dredge small in dredging terms, uh, that was designed to uh, be amphibious and to be able to access trout streams on a, because of a track system that it ran on. Okay. And then clean or excavate a, a sand trap and leave the stream without having to, and pump the material considerable distance away um, without having to you know, really construct a bona fide access road or a construction pad right next to the stream. Pretty benign impact then. You're trying to minimize the impacts. And the, uh, we were working with a couple of other individuals on the Bill and I on that project, and it, it wasn't working. Uh, there were some design flaws in the, in the machine itself, mm. and then there were some business flaws on, on our part, the, the four of us, that were in partnership. Well, in the process of, of conducting Operation Stream Sweep, people came at us with other dredging projects that they were interested in, in having done. And so um, the four of us put a company together called Restoration Dredging, and, and um, after a year, we decided among the four of us that, that Bill and I would continue to do that, and the other two fellows were going off in another direction. Okay. And so uh, for 14 years until 2015, um, restoration dredging operated. Much of the, much of our work was in southern Michigan, in uh, in warm water systems, okay, and some lakes. And uh, 
Uh, and uh, again, what really was going on there was we had a piece of equipment. It wasn't a stream sweeper. It was another piece. Um, and, and we saw an opportunity to, you know, from a business standpoint, operate successfully. And we did that. And as things slowed down a bit, water levels came up. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the economy wasn't so good. Um, we decided that we would we would sell that off, and um, and then I went back entirely to mainstream resources consulting. And as I say, I've over you know since 2015, I've wound that down. We're very selective now in terms of the projects. Now, is that something you'll pass forward to somebody that is equally responsible and knowledgeable? Or will That's that a good question. will somebody else just have to pick up that baton on their own? I, at this point, um, a couple of things have happened. Without giving insider stuff. Oh, I, no, I, no, I, no, no, no. <laughs> as they say, I've wound it down pretty much. Um, when I came out of graduate school, environmental consulting in the private sector was, aside from contamination issues, mm -hmm. was really not existent um, you know, in terms of fisheries and wildlife consulting. That, that most of that work, 99% of it, was being done inside government agencies. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, when I came out, consultants, you know, there, a niche for consultants had started to grow, and other companies came into it as well. Um, I, I continued to specialize in cold water uh, systems, and there's that, by virtue of that, I've, I've narrowed the, the market that's out there. Um, okay. So it's not likely, no one's going to beat our door down and say, hey, we'd like to buy your company and you stay on for four or five years. Well, how many guys or operations are doing that kind of work here? And well, virtually every engineering house you know, has an environmental arm now that, that does that, and particularly so that, in southern Michigan. So, I mean, how many, I guess, oh, dozens. independent? There were, in terms of people like me that are small shops, um, there are maybe a handful, you know, three or four around, um, and most of them work across state boundaries um, because of the, the small market that exists. Um, I'm a guy over in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I can't remember his last name. Joe, he's a PhD out of State College, but he went all over the world mm -hmm. advising on trout fisheries. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, I, I've not met him. Um, what caught my eye at the time was... Um, uh, an article appeared in the Wall Street Journal that several people sent to me about a company in Bozeman, Montana, Timberline, uh, Timberline Reclamations. And um, this was an interesting story. Uh, and so I read it, and I called out there, and I talked to the owner, and they had a shop of about four guys. Um, and they were, they were good guys. The president uh, of the outfit is... Um, He's done a number of things since then, as I understand it, but he, um, uh, he's a promoter. And he loved to fly fish um, and so forth, but he didn't know biology or stream ecology. And, but he put a good team together, and they got disenchanted with him. Um, I got disenchanted more quickly than they did. And, but I was to develop the Midwest. That was the game plan. Coming back to Michigan, and, and I'd just gotten married, uh, and it, it became. And the, the other fellows tipped me off. You know, be be careful. Don't get out there too far because the, you know you're gonna you're gonna see some of the things that we've seen. Well, what has happened since then? So I, I only worked for them for two months, uh, and then came back and, and founded Mainstream Resources. Um, one of the fellows, uh, Steve Fisher, is a principal in a company called Interfluve. And Interfluve consults all over the world, not only in trout streams, but uh, in, mostly in fluvial flowing systems. Um, and they were, Interfluve has been very successful and they've done good work. Um, and they've, they continue to be involved on the boardman here in Michigan. Oh, indeed. So they have, they have uh, exposure here. I haven't seen. Is that a function of the dam removal efforts, or? Well, yeah, and okay. not only the dam removal, but then what to do with the stream, how to equalize the grade after the dam's gone, how to how to manage the sediment, how to restore the riparian zone, um, all of the aspects really of, of and what you know what substrates do we add in the in the channel when necessary, so that they they've been the lead 
you know, uh, fluvial uh, geomorphologists on that project uh, from the early stages, and they continue to be. But I guess the upshot of that is I was able to see an opportunity to use my skills um, in a small shop uh, consulting situation by specializing. And, um, and we've done, Mainstream Resources has done a lot of work for watershed restoration initiatives on the Osavo, the Manuskee, the Jordan, uh, the PM, uh, the Cedar, um, and, and other rivers I'm not thinking of right now. Many of those projects, you know, remain in motion some 35 years after they started. Well, I was, um, I was just going to say, I think a lot of us enjoy targeting some of those structures uh, mm -hmm. during our, our fishing outings. So um, is there, you did a lot of the north, right? A, a lot of. Um, structure, habitat. Um, did uh, North branch? On, yeah. On the north branch, not after the, um, not after the my three summers with oh okay with DNR. okay um, uh, I've done some other structure work on the mainstream. We did some work in front of Whipperwill. Um, that was one of our early projects. Small, a relatively small project, but nonetheless, it's still in good shape. Um, the I had the good fortune on the Osable on that on the three summer period with DNR to meet Bob Andrews and Bob. Bob, another of our unsung heroes. Yes, <laughs> Bob had a laundry list constantly of things that needed to be done on the river. Whether it was, you know, let's stabilize these road ends at Burton's, Louis, Keystone, Bendera, Chase Bridge, um, mm -hmm. all these places where we frequent, and and sand is pouring into the river because you know they're not reverse graded and they're not vegetated in spots and and so forth. And and Bob. Early on, um, Mainstream did a lot of work for the local TU chapter, um, but it was Bob's thinking of uh, these are the things that need to be done. The stairway at Pine Road, for instance, which we're getting ready to replace again sure. now um, after 36 years. Um, we did those sorts of things. There have been some uh, stream bank uh, uh, stabilization measures that we did, for instance, at TU's night track or lower to you, as many of the, the people call it today. Sure. Um, ghoul's Hole. A ghoul's Hole, <laughs> exactly. Not many people know that. Um, it, many people call it Gould's Hole. It's, it's, it, you have it right. It's Gould's. Um, uh, that, uh, all sorts of projects like that, depending on what, what watershed we're in. But my connection to the Osable has, has, has stuck, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, Peter Jones had a neighbor on the river from Saginaw, Ed Nemanek. Um, Ed, Ed introduced me to um, Art Newman in, in 1980, oh. February of 1980. Um, and so, you know, the circle of life just keeps, you know, coming around and around and around. And, um, uh, but the other thing we've done on the Osable together with the uh, North Point Fisheries Management, Steve Sendek, another okay. unsung hero. Okay, there we go. Osawa. Yep. Um, <laughs> names keep coming up. Was, uh, <laughs> was the placement of a thousand um, oak and red pine, whole trees, root wads and all, with helicopters in the South Branch back in 2014. Uh, and uh, those, we put those thousand trees in in six days. Uh, uh, that, that was really an amazing project. I mean, from a project management standpoint, I had watched it being done in the past, you know, I was familiar with it and so forth, but it's, it's it really is powerful to stand there and watch, watch that activity, uh, you know, Well, the place. photographs of those giant trees being lowered from the helicopters are amazing. I know. I would have loved to have seen that in person. The, I had, my major professor at CMU, Bob King, just passed last year, um, uh, used to say, back when we were taking classes, you know, we really can't put too much wood in streams. Um, uh, you know, canoeists and kayakers probably disagree with that, but <laughs> what he, he gave it some perspective. He said, if, you, if we had aerial photographs from the early 1800s, um, or maybe even the 1750s, 
looking down on the stream, 30 to 35 percent of that surface area of that water is wood. I mean, that's what those that's what these streams looked like before we came through all the trees and stuff. Just for yeah. natural natural uh, fall. Cool. And made it navigable. We cleaned them right up, um, and, and uh, <laughs> a little too thoroughly. And then, you know, even that's what if my we stream out here looked like, <laughs> <laughs> even if we could take man out of the equation today, it takes about fifty years for a tree to grow and fall into a stream. That's an average number. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but now we have navigation that we have to consider. You know, when we look at things and when we place wood in streams, but um, our streams today and the streams that brown trout and brook trout grew up in looked a lot different than these streams. And like you know, all all humans, you know, we understand what we see. Sometimes you have to look back to see. Like that may be another component of the uh, grayling disappearance. Or mm -hmm. Just. The, going the fundamental character of the stream changed. Not in, much. In addition to logging and you know, they're taking the canopy away, but just they don't. When the when the graylings appeared nurtured, the, the mm -hmm. streams were completely different. Yeah, yeah, they were. There were there were there was no refuge, no place to hide, nothing, to, very little to tuck behind to get out of the current. Um, and um, over harvest was a big factor. Mm -hmm. That's a big factor too. Right. In, mar in market. Market fishing, um, stupidity. Yeah, but and, well, and, well, and they, they were kind of their own worst enemy too. They're pretty willing to the fly, from what I understand. Oh yeah, yeah. We've all seen you know, folks fishing with several flies. <laughs> I'll eat that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Twice. And, and, you know, if you stop, think about it. How much? Uh, certainly, Native Americans, you know, fished a lot and fished hard. Um, but you know, Europeans, once we got to that point in time. How much time were they going to spend in in that tangle out there, you know, trying to trying to catch fish? And it's easier for fish to break off when you got plenty to wrap around um, out there. So no, the streams, the streams were a lot different. Um, and uh, but I've given you a little bit in terms of my background in evolution. How did I sure. get into what I, you know, no, what, I, what I've been doing? And uh, uh, and I to go back to what you said, John, originally. Um, Yes, I've been very blessed to be able to mix, uh, if you will, my, my training and my avocation with a, with a vocation. And, and none of that's lost on me. And it, it, never, it never has been. It's, uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Do you have a favorite project that you've, you've done in the, in the immediate area, in the, in the Osaba River Shed? Or? Well, they're all, that's tough to, to Name to, your favorite to, to kid answer. type of thing? or. <laughs> There are very, very few projects that I haven't thoroughly enjoyed. Usually, that folk, that centers around people um, and personalities, but very, very few. Um, the I liked the tree project for its own, you know, just the scale of it. Uh, you know, it goes back to that saying: you can't put too much wood in the stream. Um, but uh, uh, the and, and I would like to still see us. Um, experiment with that in small tributary streams where we don't have canoes or kayaks or in, in other things because it's very easy to demonstrate why how valuable wood is not just for fish cover but uh, for retaining leaves and other nutrients and if you look at insect densities in those channels compared to you know more open channels before you leave take a look at the stream up behind the house i'll do that <laughs> I, i'll enjoy that they're they're those streams are much the, the tangled streams are much more productive they're more what we call retentive they tend to hold organic matter back it, slow it down and insects will colonize and small fish will find places and they'll find food um and so forth and so i think i think there are some things that we can do from an education standpoint by manipulating some of those small streams and then documenting, you know, what they hold. They, we've done it, in a, they've done it in other places, uh, but we could do it here in Michigan, too, and get people focused on the value of wood in streams and so forth. I, in the fall, I gather the leaves, you know, from the open parts of, of my uh, yard at the cabin, and I take them on a tarp down to the river, and I, and I put the leaves in the river. Really? And um, and those will colonize with fungi and hang up in 
in log jams and colonize with insects in turn. You can't believe how many people, you know, just start shaking their finger at me. You're messing up You're obliterating. Yeah, no, I'm creating um, a habitat. <laughs> I, I said, no, this is actually positive, trust me. Well, who are you? I said, I'm a stream ecologist. They don't know what to say at that point. <laughs> oh, doesn't make me God. It's just, a, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. This I am really a good. subject matter expert, actually. Facts and such are kind of go to the back seat and <laughs> competing with the parents and uh, yeah and well, they're embarrassed at that point because they've already staked out a position you know? right <laughs> instead of saying what what are you doing um, and why are you doing that I've been, I've been throwing them in the uh, power line right away so maybe maybe I'll change my method I, it is it a and in this completely naive question and, and not to be facetious but mm-hmm. is there a limit to that I mean <clears throat> sure Oh, absolutely. We wouldn't want everybody in the river corridor doing that all at once, would we, or would we? Well, that's a good question. It's it's a really good question. The reality is... Because I just want to know how many people I need to tell. (laughs) This is just something I should do in my little yard. (laughs) I'm not sure you could get too many people doing it of their own volition um, to to cause a problem in the ensemble. In the ensemble. The challenges are our riparian corridor, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, is coniferous. So it's not contributing leaves uh, to the system. Um, there was probably a point in time where we had more of a mixed hardwood um, and softwood as well, con- uh, deciduous as well as coniferous. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, the river's not really starved for those. But if you ever want to, you know, have some fun, take some leaves. You know, take a wad of leaves and um, take a needle and you know, put a thread through it and tie them together. And stake them to something, you know, that's out there and go back. Um, maybe not right away in the fall, but certainly in the, in spring by the time we got to April. You know, pull that pack out of there and lay it in the pan and, and watch what watch what comes off. Of Another seeding tool yeah. experiment. And, and <laughs> there's a whole category of insects called shredders, mm. and, and they will... They're not eating the leaves, even though that's what it looks like. They're eating the, the fungi that have colonized them. They've attached to the leaves. leaves. And, okay. and they will spend a significant part of their life there, um, you know, maturing uh, before uh, breaking free and, and moving along. So uh, leaves are an important component in streams. And we, we don't, for the most part, have a lot of leaves falling into the other side. Just, just due to um, uh, the fact. Due to the fact that, the, again, the riparian corridor, the riparian zone along the edges of the Osavo River and its tributaries in most places is coniferous. The trees are, are, are uh, uh, evergreens, hemlocks, balsams, and, and uh, cedar and so forth. So you don't have that, that deciduous leaf input in, in the river that, that we do here. Um, in town, you've, you'd asked earlier about whether there's any conflict. In town, you have a fair amount of deciduous trees just mm-hmm. in the urban nature. And, and, you know, would it hurt for them to throw those leaves, you know, for citizens to throw those leaves in the river? Probably not. Again, just as a matter of scale. Um, well, I'm just wondering, you know, because a lot of us flash, and, and you and I haven't talked about this, but we've talked amongst ourselves and mm-hmm. about certain homeowners that will um, manicure their... Uh, property right down to river's edge and that could entail fertilizers and other such things that or maybe you know as in back of the day where you know maybe a little gray water's coming out of the house or whatever um does any of that counterbalance that well that's that's a good question certainly you have some nutrients uh that that, uh, uh enter the river and and these rivers that come out of sandy soils in, in northern lower Michigan, in many instances, are nutrient poor. In, on a scale, you know, looking globally, they're relatively... Yeah, there's just not a whole lot of farming taking place up here. No, no. <laughs> but um, I would rather see something like leaves um, come in, and I would rather see riparian zones, even in town, that had more trees, you know, for a couple of reasons, shading being, being one of them. Um, uh, leaf and other organic inputs uh, as well. 
Um, so the river would benefit from that. But I realize that if, if, if you are inside the city limits that, you know, your the riparian zone is going to look different than it right, does right. than it does in, in other in other places. Um, and we've talked a number of us, Brian Burroughs from Michigan TU, sure, um, and others uh, put together some interesting videos uh, together with the MDNR forest management and other uh, uh, commercial forest interests talking about the importance of riparian trees in the riparian zone and. Are there some things that we can do um, uh, here with USDA, for instance, in terms of encouraging people to plant trees and maybe providing, you know, some cost sharing? Uh, oh, sure. In order, to, in order to accomplish that. You know, we, Howard's been doing his thing for a long, long time with yeah. Cedars for the Asable, and um, I, I think everybody is, you know, totally bought into the, well, <laughs> the Howard's concept. Howard's done an excellent job. Yeah, he's just. Him. Amazing, but the uh, yes. and and it's and as you say, it's been there a long time, so it's having, it's having an impact. Um, it didn't come and go. Uh, oh yeah. So, you know that's that's good as well. As far as you know, as they say, I've enjoyed every project that I've worked on for the most part, and um, and they've been the, the projects have been diverse, uh, and there's a need for these sorts of projects to continue, and there are groups out there. Uh, including trial limited chapters and, and uh, anglers of the Osable, um, a whole host of groups, a variety of watershed restoration committees around the state and initiatives, and and those should continue. Um, as far as other consultants, you know, coming in, the the engineering houses are starting to get involved, and they have they have good biologists and ecologists uh, on staff, um, and uh, I think it's it's rare to see a small shop like ours. Unless, as you discussed earlier, um, you know, you build your client base to the point where you're working across the country and maybe even internationally, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be able to have enough, uh, uh, enough of a market there, you know, to warrant it. And uh, and there are peaks. No matter how good you you are at it, there are peaks and valleys in the in the workload. Oh, I should uh, think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should think. Well, I just all need. Talk about Art Newman for a minute if you want to. Let's uh, do that. <laughs> Art, what a gentleman. Um, I really miss him. So you got to know Art in 80? I met Art in February of 1980 uh, at the Pioneer Club in Saginaw at a Mershon chapter uh, walleye dinner. So he was, uh, what, he shut his shop down in 91, so you had a good exposure to that too, I suppose. I did, I did. Um, uh, as I'd indicated at that uh, earlier, at that uh, uh, Pioneer Club outing, Ed Nemanek, I had given a presentation about my research, and uh, which that chapter had helped fund. Uh, and Ed Nemanek came over and he says, "Well, that was really well received, and, and so forth." He says, "Come on, we'll, you know, let's step over into the into the pub here, and would you like to meet Art Newman?" And I said. Yeah, well, when would we do that? And he said, well, we would do that right now. <laughs> and I said, be about now. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, and I knew who Art was. I knew that he, he helped found Trout Unlimited and been actively involved. And that was the beginning of, of um, a fairly long and, and sometimes involved relationship. Um, uh, we, I've said this a number of times. I think Trout Unlimited members in Michigan uh, have had a bit of a stronger connection to the national organization because of the fact that it was formed here um, on the banks of the Osable, and, and so many people had the benefit of knowing those founding fathers and interacting with them. And uh, in my case, it was it was Art Newman, and uh, and he was very. He took me under his wing, and uh, he had an uncommon way of hooking people and getting them involved and keeping them involved. And um, and I'm so fortunate to have had the, the benefit of that. Um, the uh, Art and I fished one time on the North Range, um, oh, wow. and uh, for, for a few hours on a lovely afternoon, he kept bugging me. Come on, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it. And at that time, 
we had our cabin on Spectacle Lake. And I said, well, you know, come on up and, and where do you want to fish? He said, well, we're going to fish the North Branch. And I said, okay, well, so we'll meet in Lovells, such and such a time. And, uh, and we did. And I told him, I said, Art, we'll spend the night at, at Spectacle Lake, which is you know, 10, 15 minutes away. And uh, we didn't, ultimately didn't do that. Art said, no, no, I, I, I told the wife I'd be home, uh, you know, tonight yet. And I got things to do in the morning. But uh, we had a wonderful time on the river, um, enjoyed ourselves, and, uh, uh, and, and enjoyed a libation uh, at the conclusion of the hour. Right on. And, um, uh, but Art... Was was truly a, a, a gentleman. Now, uh, mind you, he was retired when I met him uh, from from Eaton Manufacturing, uh, where he was a real, uh, you know, superb uh, toolmaker. Um, and uh, his life is, you know, when we examine it, was really an interesting life. He um, he taught me an awful lot. Um, taught me uh, the ins and outs of politics of uh, the politics of projects in, in TU and TU chapters and people. Um, and, um, and he had a, he had a, you know, a, a real gift for, for doing that. Um, we had uh, an interesting relationship on the DeWard project on the upper, on the upper Manistee. I, I think I talked about that a little bit in, in what you had me put together for the museum. Um, you want to take a moment and share that too, because yeah, I'd be glad to. we're we're fortunate that some of our listeners, are which side of the coin you're on, we, I wish everybody that listened to this show could actually show up at the museum. <laughs> so well, we, they should. Yeah. Well, they. And they should. Thank you. Um, it's a, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, my introduction to the museum was about five years ago, and um, uh, from a, you know. For what you folks do to preserve history um, of not just the North Branch, but the, the Lovells area and, um, and trout fishing um, is really something to behold. And, uh, and, and, you know, you can spend an hour at the museum or you can spend four hours at the museum, depending on, on you know, what your liking is that day. But, and I've been back, on, as you know, on numerous occasions, uh, and I still learn something. Not just because the exhibit changed, but you know, over in the in the uh, uh, in Art Newman's exhibit, there are things that I still pick out. Um, and for those who so haven't cool. seen <laughs> seen the Newman exhibit, you know, the the cutout of Art leaning across the display case is the quintessential Art Newman. Um, Wanna Gas Rod Company in that showcase, where that's where court was held. And, um, and mm. so many people benefited from that. So, and I remember on the day of the, um, of the dedication, uh, Glenn Everly came out on the porch and said, Prozad, have you been in here yet? And I said, no. He says, somebody over here wants to talk to you. <laughs> and when I came around the corner and looked in the room, <laughs> there's the life-size cutout of Art leaning across the counter with that big smile on his face. <laughs> that's the Art Newman I knew. Um, that's and awesome. Many people would walk in there and they you know, wonder who the hell was looking at them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't a, tell you how many people come in and wave and say hi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it, 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 you guys really did a fabulous job in, in, in putting that that all together. And as I say, when you when you walked through the archway, that's that's art. It's well, like you know we actually we went down to the shop before it was demolished. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got some of the stuff out of the shop that did go to the state. <clears throat> Steve Johnson was on that project with us, and of course he, he you know, he was his connection to our way back. Yeah. And he knew the shop, and he'd been in there, and he mm -hmm. was, uh, and he helped us get it together and did make the the replica. You know, as authentic as it is, is uh, was largely uh, Steve's doing. He he helped out a lot. Well, art was larger than life to me. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I could still see him every every March when I would, you know, go in there early April, depending on when Art came back uh, from the South. He'd look at me, he'd have that sweater on, and he'd say, "Well, David, 
you got pregnant again last winter. Oh, <laughs> and, I, and I would respond, Arthur, it's good to see you as well. <laughs> and, um, and, Just uh, right out of the gate. Right, right out of it, yeah. Um, and, and he was always, always straightforward with me on things. But going back to the DeWard uh, situation, um, the, uh, the elder members of the board had gone to uh, South for, for the winter. And in advance of that, uh, we had been, uh, the chapter had been, you know, bouncing around this idea of trying to stabilize 70 or 80 stream banks that had gotten beaten up pretty badly uh, over the previous few years after the oil and gas development had gone through the DeWar track. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that idea had rolled around and it, it had grown legs. And the, the chapter president at the time was Carl Hewinger, and, and we had a uh, we had a really good uh, uh, project committee uh, comprised of, of Carl, Ed Nemanek, who was Peter Jones' next door neighbor on the river, and um, and I'm going to forget some names here, but there were a half a dozen fellows on that, and, and I had been retained, mainstream had been retained to put grant proposals together. Michigan Wildlife Habitat Foundation had just formed and they decided that 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 year was going to be the year of the trout stream. They were going to give out $50,000 to several trout uh, trout unlimited groups and others to res to do some stream restoration. And um, DNR had a grant program, National TU had one. So there were half a dozen proposals that we were putting together. As I started to put them together, um, I. I realized that the chapter folks had never told me how much money, what their cash contribution to the project was going to be. <laughs> That's a problem. Um, so I called up Carl and I said, Carl, you know, I, I put in a proposal together and I, it's easy enough to put together volunteer man hours and extrapolate that to dollars, but, but these funders are going to want to see a cash match. And we talked about it a bit before. What, is, what are you guys thinking? What number do I put in that blank? And, and Carl said, well, you know, I've got a number in mind, but I want to talk to the guys. And he said, I'll call you back. And he did the next day. And he said, um, we're going to put the lion's share of the treasury into, into the project. And I said, okay, okay. Um, and you canvassed everyone. And he said, well, everyone that's in Michigan right now. And, uh, uh -oh. and I said, okay, uh, that's fine. <laughs> now, we won't talk exact numbers, but... Uh, so I put the proposal together, and it, it got funded in every instance. Um, and so they they had the money, um, and there were other individual chapters that contributed as well through, from throughout the state. Well, make a long story longer. Uh, <laughs> the, the the project was a, a done deal on paper. By the time the other board members had returned from you know the south, and uh, um, there were questions of of the. Of the local board members that we got to that point. You did and, what? <laughs> and, and, and then Art called me about a week later, a week after they'd all gotten back for a board meeting. And he said, uh, Dave, he says, tell me about this project coordinator from the Habitat, Michigan Habitat Foundation, Michigan Wildlife Habitat Foundation. I said, oh, he's Marv Johnson. I said, Marv, ran the state side of the Shiawassee uh, Wildlife Refuge and just retired and was working for these folks. Good, good. Do you think he, you and he and I could have lunch next week or one day? And, uh, and I said, well, I'll check with him. I know I'm available. And uh, he gave me dates and times that would work for him. We put the meeting together. And, uh, and Marv was in his you know, mid to late 60s at the time. And so he and... He and Art were on the same wavelength, and uh, when you know, we got done, you know, Art had a series of logistical questions that he was checking, and he was satisfied that that Marv had a good head on his shoulders, and that we weren't going to end up, you know, in the swamp uh, on this thing. And then he said to me after, he said, "Now, Dave, I need a chat with you after <laughs> after Marv leaves." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I, I am all afternoon," um, and we. We talked, and he basically says, you know, 
forget the 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 money things and philosophically some of us have a challenge with the idea of a TU chapter being physically and financially involved to this extent on work that traditionally has been that of government agencies ah. you know we're paying our taxes every year and and so that's a philosophical question now Marv has Marv has you know convinced me that the budget is good and that the thinking is all good and he said so we're going to do this and we're going to do it upright um and uh, and we're all going to be proud of it when it's done and i said absolutely and he said uh, thanks for helping put this lunch together today and i said well thank you for you know uh, for sitting down with us and, and talking with us about it and when it was all done a number of years later Art said, well, he said, I'm looking around and there are plenty of other groups doing this very same thing. And I said, well, we didn't know it at the moment, but budgets and, and manpower were dwindling, you know, both state and federally. And if any of these things were going to get done, they were going to have to be done in ways that were traditionally, were, were unconventional in, in the past. And he said... You know, he said, I still think it's risky. I still think it's it's fundamentally flawed from a philosophy standpoint. But he says, we did a good job, and look, other people are doing it. Um, so uh, it, that showed me a side of art where, because, you know, I, I knew him pretty well at that point. And, and he could be a tough, a tough German when he wanted to. Uh, but he was willing to have his mind, you know, be open and look at new ways to do old things. And he felt much the same way uh, when it came to the hiring of an executive director, a full-time executive director at the state level. Um, and then when Rich Bowman came on, he uh, uh, he went out there and he glad-handed and they had a luncheon for him and, and the whole bit. And our, you could see the evolution of, oh, all right. Acceptance. Yeah, you know, I guess now that I see it up close and it's happening, um, and then when, when Brian Burroughs came on board, um, he was, you know, exceedingly happy and, and you know, we'd, we'd been at it for a while at that point. Uh, so uh, I, I really enjoyed him. I, I don't know that it's possible for us to really understand those early days, but um, my analysis, uh, having looked at it over the years, is Art was the right person in the right place at the right time to, to drag a struggling organization out of the ditch and put it on the map. And he took two and a half years out of his personal life uh, to do well, it. Yeah, he took a leave from Eaton, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he asked him for a year. Then he asked him for a renewal for another year. And then he asked him for half a year. In the meantime, the board was begging him to just quit his job at Eaton and do this. And Art, you know, told it time and time again. He said, I can't, I can't do that. I have a family, I have mm -hmm. obligations, I have a great job, you know. But when you heard him tell the stories of the early days in his two and a half years, um, and the time it led up to the organization as well, which he was heavily involved in, um, he had almost an evangelical zeal Mm -hmm. to the mission. You know. well, it's probably safe to say there wouldn't be a TU today or the, the character of it would be much different if Art hadn't done what he did. It could have been much different. It certainly would have taken a lot longer. Um, you know, he was the... Um, and he had good people around him. Art was very... Even though he was hard driving um, and tough, he recognized he had good people around him. And they were pushing him and supporting him the whole time. And um, just a unique... A very unique positive set of circumstances that allowed him to do what he had to do. And in fact, you know, he tells the story leading up to the request to take leave, where he said the board, we had a meeting and we were in dire straits. And uh, the board said, we need a full-time executive director completely committed to this. You know, things have got to change. And art being art, you know, said, well, do you have someone in mind? And they said, yeah, or you. 
Um, <laughs> golf. Um, Speak of the devil. Never asked that question. <laughs> um, and then the request, you know, you know, I have a full-time job. That's nah, not a problem. Listen, we can help write letters. Ask your boss if you can take a year's leave. And, uh, uh, and, you know, and that's, from my perspective, when I heard the, the, the story that evolved from there and how he spent his time uh, in, over the next two and a half years, Art had found his calling. There's no question about it. And uh, yet he was smart enough to realize, I can't do this forever because personalities change, people change, mm -hmm. and, and you're out. Uh, but uh, I think that truly at that moment, after he got into it, this, you know, success is, is preparation, meeting opportunity, it was there. It just gelled. And, and Art was a prolific writer. He kept correspondence. His handwriting was meticulous. Um, and um, and he, he mulled things. He tossed things around in his mind constantly. He didn't just jump from one thing to the next. He was a really organized uh, person, which was a function of his, his education at Michigan Lutheran Seminary, in my mind. Um, he, he, he was taught by well-trained and effective uh, teachers. And, uh, and, you know, and he... He was very humble about it. He said, I'm surrounded with these, you know, these people that have a lot more skills than I do. And I said, yeah, and they used all those skills to support you. Um, and uh, they didn't have, nor did they, if they did, they didn't want to use those skills because they knew how much it took time-wise yeah. and, and the wear and tear, you know, on your body. But, you know, we can't, it's, it's so heartwarming to see what you folks have done at the, at the museum and you know the memorial in front of it, the rock at Lower TU with the philosophy plaque on it, um, so that future generations can understand where TU came from, who Art Newman was, um, and and so forth. And as I say, he taught me, you know, so so very much. You know, I was scared to death that when those fellows came back from Florida on the Dwar project, that it was it was going in the game afternoon. over. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's not the way they approached it. They weren't happy, but they figured out that you know, we're, we're going to take the dive here. And, uh, and the treasury was restored within several years. Um, it, it generated that much momentum um, you know, over time. So, you know, I really miss Art. Um, you know, like anyone else, we, we all know who passes. I mean, how many days go by where you go, I've got to go ask Art that. Mm -hmm. oh, no, Pick up the phone to call or exactly. yeah, stop by. Um, yeah, and uh, it was just it was just a, a, a real uh, pleasure. We were fortunate um, that that he was with us for ninety nine years. Um, but Art was one of a kind. He really was one of a kind, and I was fortunate to know him. I was fortunate that he befriended me, and uh, and that we spent some real quality time. Uh, together and, and, and he helped me, as I say, with so many things uh, in terms of learning uh, various aspects of life and, and you know what to uh, what to expect and how to react. That's awesome. It is. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, he, if and maybe we'll segue into an, another little piece here for a second, but I seem to want to think that uh, you're a new member of uh, Natural Resource Commission. Maybe, sort of, well, kind of, were? I can, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I've been on the Natural Resource Commission twice now, oh, yeah. in the last six months. In the last oh. six months. <laughs> and, um, and I'm hoping that, that uh, this one is, is permanent. Um, uh, Tom Baird and I, uh, uh, Tom is also a, a, an, unsung an unsung hero, hero. this year. Yep. And Tom and I met back in the early 1980s at Michigan TU. Um, uh, were nominated by uh, Governor Whitmer in December uh, to the Natural Resources Commission for a term of four years. And uh, we sat for the January meeting of the commission, and uh, which is all being done virtually right now. Right. Um, and then uh, later in January, uh, the Senate rejected us together with total of 25 or so people ultimately in, in stages mm -hmm. um, uh, without benefit of a hearing uh, at all. Uh, and, uh, and then 
the governor reappointed us uh, toward the end of May. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, towards the end of March. And uh, we, Tom and I were both fortunate a couple of weeks ago to have a hearing in front of the Senate Advice and Consent Committee. And uh, we had, both of us, uh, a really good dialogue uh, with that committee. And uh, we, we're waiting to hear. Okay. Uh, so uh, we currently sit, we've sat for two more meetings. Uh, okay. April and May. And, uh, and we have June on our calendar. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, so I guess there are a couple of ways to look at it. The committee does not have to approve us. They have the right to reject us. And um, if they don't reject us within the, the specified time frame, uh, they we're approved. Accepted de- by de default. At that point. <laughs> yeah. And by default. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Squatter's rights. <laughs> uh, I've been there. <laughs> Tom and I both really want to serve. And... Uh, and again, I think we had a good hearing. Well, um, the state's going to be a lot better for it. You br- you both bring a lot to the party. Well, thank and, you. Um, um, well, it sounds like you got your background certainly is the appropriate one to do that work. Well, I, I was very pleased and humbled to be to be nominated. Um, and uh, as I say, we both dearly want to serve. So uh, we've been patient through this process, and um, we both said early on that we'd welcome a hearing. Uh, and we were thankful to get to here. We, we, we try not to go down the political lane here too much, but let's just say this delay was not a function of your qualification or your desire. <laughs> I think that's a safe statement. Okay, um, so we'll, we'll go there, and uh, we'll hope that uh, sanity and logic prevail and that the appointment's made or... Mm-hmm. You end up doing the right thing and and doing the right thing for the for the state. So I think it's great. Well, we're both you know we're both different people, but I think we're both fairly level-headed, um, and we have some uh, background and experience. And uh, I can tell you, we've learned a great deal already uh, in terms of you know, just research that we've done on the topics at hand and the ones that we know are in front of us. Uh, and there's you know I enjoy learning. So yeah, we look forward to the we would look forward to the opportunity to continue to learn and to uh, uh, try and benefit the people and the natural resources of the state. That's awesome. Because the thing that we often lose track of, and and, and it's true with environmental consultants as well, is that our natural resources are held in trust by the state and managed for the benefit of the people. Um, and so. Uh, there's there's a lot of opportunity there to do good, and uh, uh, we'd like to we'd like to do that. Sometimes the message doesn't come across real clear that the state's a steward of this property, not the owner. That's right. That's right. And in in reality, that's true of all of us with all of our properties. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're transient. The, 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 the yes. properties and the resources. <laughs> well, a lot of times you don't own the property, it owns you. Yeah. That, well, that's well, true too. Then you have that. <laughs> that that's, that's true as well. But um, we'll stay tuned and um, and hopefully we'll, we'll see a positive outcome here. Well, and again, not to be, you know, cliche or anything, but we really be, will be as, as a state in a better place with you looking out after these things. Well, I must say, we're two of seven people. Um, and, and the commissioners, the other five commissioners, uh, are doing a fine job. Oh, and, uh, not to besmirch uh, them in any way, oh, shape, no, no. or for the entire, but, the, the function of that is mm-hmm. critical. So, I have a lot of people come to me, you didn't, but I have a lot of people come to me and say, you know, well, what are you going to do? Or, you know, the, the, the focus is on me. I'm one of seven. Um, collectively, we put our minds together. And we, and we discuss and we deliberate and we come up with, you know, everyone contributes and we come up with something that hopefully benefits the resource and the people of the, of the state and beyond the state. Well, to be um, sure. That, that's the outlook that, that, that I have. And um, the problem with natural resource, the challenge, it's not a problem, with natural resource management is that you, you have a lot of diverse interests and perspectives. And... Um, it's tough to bring those together to, to a consensus of some kind. 
And that's the challenge the Natural Resource Commission has. And yep. When you start to read things like the deer regulations or the bear regulations, and you know your eyes initially cross as you're as you're trying to read that and digest it and understand where where it came from, you know, and and, and what it's doing. But it, as you spend time doing it, it comes it comes into focus. And well, I'll tell you what we're we're really grateful for you taking time from your day today, Dave, and and speaking with us and sharing stories and uh, such with our listeners. We're, we're most grateful. We're especially excited to have you as one of our unsung heroes of the Asable, and uh, we wish you well and continue good health and keep doing good things. Well, thank you, John and Richard, and, yep. and, and let, me, by. let me indicate, too, that um, uh, I can't uh, thank you folks enough uh, and and your boards uh, in terms of the Lovells Township Historical Society and uh, the Lovells Museum of Trout Fishing History. Uh, those you're, you're doing a, a, a fine job, and uh, your willingness to take time uh, to do these podcasts and to get the word out um, from from those of us who have differing views sometimes um, is truly appreciated. And um, uh, again, you're you're preparing things to pass on to future generations, and uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, that was good fun. And uh, coincidentally, uh, luck of the podcast, I guess, uh, we found out shortly after recording that uh, Dave and Tom have both been uh, officially appointed to the NRC, and so uh, small victory there as well. So thanks, everybody, for listening, uh, and enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, and we'll look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks. Until then, mind your back cast. <laughs>